Everybody loves a story with a happy ending. Everybody loves a story with a happy ending. Especially my son Josiah, so that I've learnt. We've settled into a bit of a bedtime routine with him now. He has to have a story before he goes to sleep each night. It can be any story. Sometimes it's a Bible story. He loves the story of David killing Goliath over and over and over again. Sometimes it's a story that his uh, daddy has to just make up off the top of his head. Uh, We've been doing the kid-friendly version of Avengers Endgame recently, but because it's the kid-friendly version, I've got no spoilers for you tonight, don't worry. But whatever Josiah's bedtime story might be, there is just one golden rule. It must end happily. That is what Josiah expects. No sleepy time until he hears that happy ending. And I think that sometimes we can see the resurrection of Jesus this way. It is just the much-needed happy ending that Luke has written for us after the dark account of Jesus' death, the cruel cross, and his burial in the cold tomb. The resurrection itself, it's not that crucial, but it is just, you know, the high note that Luke ends his gospel on after the misery of the cross. In fact, there are some prominent church leaders who don't take the resurrection of Christ seriously uh, at all. They don't think it really happened. These are the words of one of the highest-ranking members of the clergy in the Church of England, Reverend Dr. John Shepherd, and he said this in his Easter Sunday sermon a few years ago. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus ought not to be seen in physical terms, but as a new spiritual reality. It's important for Christians to be set free from the idea that the resurrection was an extraordinary physical event which restored to life Jesus' original earthly body. So Reverend Dr. John Shepherd doesn't see Jesus' physical resurrection as important. He doesn't even believe it happened. It is just the made-up happy ending that the disciples, they dreamed up, desperately wanting to believe that Christ had somehow risen spiritually in their hearts, whatever that means. But remember how Luke started his gospel back in Luke 1, 1 to 3, and as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account. Luke has no interest in fairy tales or made-up happy endings. He has written for us this orderly account on the basis of eyewitness testimony concerning the things that have been accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As we come to the end of his account today, Luke shows us not only what the resurrection really involved, but also why it is so crucial for us and our world. For us to know without a doubt that God has kept his promise to save. That we as his people have good news to share with all whom we might meet. And that as we do, we are secure in Christ no matter what. These truths rest on the fact that Christ rose bodily from the grave and ascended to his father's side. Luke knew though, just as in our day, in his day there would be doubters who question if Jesus really rose from the dead. We've already met a few of them in this account just these past couple of weeks. We we saw the women a couple of weeks ago as they visited the empty tomb and the angels declare, 
He is not here. He is risen. And so they rushed back to the apostles in Jerusalem to tell them, and they turned around and accused them of talking rubbish. And then last week, we met these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And at first, they were overcome with sadness and depression, convinced that their Lord had been defeated by the grave until he himself joined them on the road to Emmaus. And eventually their eyes were opened and they rushed back to the apostles in Jerusalem to say themselves, we have seen him. We've seen the risen Jesus. And that's where we pick up things today. As they're still talking about this, something astounding happens in the very room where the disciples are gathered. Jesus appears as one who is very physical and very hungry. Jesus' bodily resurrection. Come with me to Luke 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Now, how would you feel if your dead friend suddenly stood in front of you very much alive? And when the disciples saw Jesus, they were terrified. Verse 37, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, well, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? So for them, they should not have been overly troubled. They should have not been overly surprised because Jesus had told them before the cross, on the third day I will rise. But still they see him now and they think he is a spirit. And Jesus is keen to show them he is no ghost. He, can, he said, come on, touch me, I'm real. Verse 39, see my hands, my feet. Uh, the marks of the nails from the cross on which he died, they're still there. It is I, myself, my body's been transformed. Yes, he is glorified. He is raised never to die again, yet there is still continuity for him now and for his body before death. It's still me, says Jesus. Touch me and see. Verse 39 continues. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And to prove to them without a doubt that he really is physical, Jesus does something that you really have to be physical in order to do, something that I personally know far too much about. Something that we as Malaysians know far too much about. Verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Jesus, in hunger, asks for lunch. Now, I got an E grade in my biology A-level, which basically means in British terms, I am a failure academically. But even I know that if you get hungry, it's a sign that you have a stomach that demands food for mine far too much, far too often. I'm hungry. Jesus' resurrection body had a stomach, was fleshly, was real. He got hungry, and so he needed to eat. He makes that clear to his disciples here. But not only does he make it clear, I am real, I am not a spirit, I have flesh, I have bones. But he now explains to them what that means for them and for his world, now that he has risen bodily from the dead, never to die again. Jesus' bodily resurrection means God has kept his promise to save. That could, be not, that could not be more important. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And Jesus makes it clear to them gathered there, his sacrificial death and his bodily resurrection, they were at the heart of God's plans to bring salvation to our world from the very beginning. 
promised through his Old Testament word. We have Jesus gives us every division of the Hebrew scriptures here, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he says, they must be fulfilled in me. Jesus says, it's all about me. So friends, if I or any of the other pastors here at Smack and St. Mary's preaches a sermon from the Old Testament scriptures without even mentioning Jesus, if we preach a message that would be uh, easily accepted in a mosque or a synagogue, well then you have permission to tell us off. Because the Old Testament cannot be taught rightly today without talking about Jesus, who keeps it perfectly. But the disciples, they needed help to see this. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus now explains to them how how their Bibles ultimately pointed all along to him. And he does it in three specific steps. Three key steps in God's plans to save our broken world, seen in his promises in the Old Testament. Verse 46, Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, step one. And on the third day rise from the dead, step two. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, step three. So where do we see this in our Old Testaments? Okay, we've already been introduced to the possibility of Bible overview, and I'm going to give you a bit of a spoiler tonight. We're going to do a very, very quick Bible overview on these three steps from Genesis to Malachi, but don't worry, it's not going to take too long. All right, three examples using the divisions that we're given here. One from the law of Moses, one from the Psalms, and one from the prophets. Where do we see step one, Christ's sufferings in the law of Moses? Well, let's go right back to the beginning, to the opening chapters of Genesis, the first book of Moses, and we get a hint, just a hint, concerning the sufferings of God's promised one. In Genesis 3, we see how mankind, we rebel against God and the persons of Adam and Eve, having listened to the serpents to Satan's lies. They give in to temptation despite God warning them as our creator who had provided everything for our good that the, 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 the moment you break my good laws for you, you will surely die. And yet Adam and Eve, like us, they still sin against God and so that judgment came. And in Genesis 3.15, God pronounces judgment specifically on the serpent, on Satan for leading Adam and Eve into sin. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise or crush your head. You shall bruise or crush his heel. And that back then was for mankind a ray of hope in the midst of our darkest day. Somehow or other, the seed of the woman, a descendant of Eve, will crush Satan destroy his power, and so bring an end to the reign of sin and death that has ravaged us and our world. And yet in doing so, his heel shall be bruised, crushed. He himself will suffer. It's cryptic, yes. It's just a a hint, a pointer that God's promise won. The serpent crusher would suffer as he works to save. But later, much later, in Hebrews 2.14, after the cross, we are told clearly of how Jesus, as God's son, became like one of us. Uh, He became a descendant of Eve as he took on flesh and blood, though he was the son of God. And we read in Hebrews 2.14, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus is the promised 
serpent crusher. The one who did suffer as he died to save us and so release us from the grip of Satan. And so bring us life rather than the condemnation we deserve for sin. Let's just think about the Psalms. We read Psalm 22 earlier. That Psalm of King David of Israel. It starts out with David crying out to God in anguish. As one who has been abandoned, he is scorned, despised, mocked, ridiculed. He's said to be poured out thirsty, lying in the dust of death. And yet Psalm 22 is the psalm that is quoted most by Jesus as he dies on the cross, as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he bore the sins of the world, as he endured his father's judgment in our place. He did that as the king, the Christ, the Messiah of whom David wrote, the one whom David foreshadowed. David suffered in order to enter into his kingdom. And so Jesus, as the son of David, as the greater David, suffered and died before receiving his eternal throne. Now we finally we have the prophets. We just think back to Isaiah that we've read regularly in our services these past few weeks. And he speaks of one known as the servant of the Lord in his prophecy, who would bring justice to the nations, yes, but only as he suffered on behalf of the nations, the servant would die for the sins of the world. He would be a substitute, taking on board the sins of his people in their place. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He took our guilt, our shame before God, every failure in fulfillment of Isaiah as the king of the Psalms, as the serpent crusher in Genesis 3. Uh, Jesus suffered even to the point of death, but death would not have the final word. Again, Luke 2446, Jesus tells them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Step two, where do we see this promise of resurrection life in the scriptures? Well, again, back in Genesis 3, uh, we see that although the serpent's head is crushed, it is only the human's heel that is wounded. So the human suffers, yes, but he is not ultimately destroyed. Again, it's cryptic. It's just a pointer. And then in Psalm 22, when God's king suffers and dies, there is this twist. God still, even in death, hears his cry. So Psalm 22, verse 20, David cries out, Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then it changes. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So he speaks of his enemies and what they are doing to him with this symbolic language. David suddenly speaks of deliverance. Suddenly he's rescued. God has heard his cry. And of course, clearest of all in Isaiah 53, we see a similar theme, but in different words. The suffering servant whose life was made a guilt offering for our sins. Paradoxically, after dying, Isaiah 53 verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The servant is alive having already died, his soul having made an offering for the guilt of his people. And so as Jesus stood before his disciples that first Easter Sunday, the Old Testament, which they had been their Bible, their scriptures that they'd been exposed to from young children, for the first time it made sense. It was ultimately God's plan for salvation in his son from the beginning, and Jesus was the missing piece that made sense of the puzzle. 
but only because the disciples now saw him, Jesus, risen bodily from the grave before their very eyes. And if that had not happened, if the resurrection is just a made-up happy ending, then Christ is no saviour at all. Because rather than defeating sin and death as God promised in his word, rather than winning for us the forgiveness of sins and resurrection life that we desperately need, we would have to say Jesus was defeated by death. He remained in the grave. Which means he's not the serpent crusher. He's not God's king that will not see decay. He's not the suffering servant who brings us the light of life. And yet, thankfully, Luke makes it clear here, the resurrection is no made-up happy ending. Christ is risen bodily from the grave. It's the only proof we need to know that in him and in him alone, we can say death is dead. Love is one. Christ has conquered. We need not fear condemnation in our own death for our own sin because he has paid the price and prevailed for us. And that brings us on to our next point. Jesus' bodily resurrection means that we now have good news to share with our world. So the third step in God's plans, promised in his word before, that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached to all the nations beginning with Jerusalem. And it stands apart from the first two steps because Christ has died and Christ is risen. And yet, step three, this good news going out to the ends of the earth, it is what we are living in still today as God's agents who take out this great gospel of eternal life in Christ. Israel as a nation may have received God's promise initially, yes, but they were always intended for the world. So back in Genesis 3, the serpent crusher saves the human race because the serpent was the one who brought the human race into sin and death, not just Israel. In Psalm 22, all the ends of the earth remember what happened to Israel's king as he suffers. And so we see the nations repent and turn back to God. In Isaiah 49 verse 6, the servant is told, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's the impact that Jesus has on our world now, having done all that is needed for anyone from any background, anywhere, to repent, to turn from sin that leads otherwise to death and condemnation, and instead know forgiveness and new life with God, both now by his Spirit and one day in every way, all because Christ has paid for it all by his blood. So we can have a fresh start with God again as we see it in his resurrection life. His body raised never to die again. Far from being a made-up happy ending, it is the grounds for the most crucial new beginning for us, otherwise lost in sin. The relationship with the God who made us to know and find our rest in him now available to all. And don't we see that here this evening in one way? One of the most common comments that an overseas visitor gives to me, having spent an evening at Smack, uh, Smack 2 or a morning at Smack 1, is, Tim, Smack is such a, a diverse group of people from so many different backgrounds, ethnically. We've got Malaysians, yes, but we've got Sri Lankans, we've got British, we've even got Australians. 
We've got those who are from different religious backgrounds. We've got Hindu backgrounds. We've got Buddhist backgrounds. We've even got Baptist backgrounds. That's a, that's a joke. We love, that's a joke. We love our Baptist brothers and sisters. I couldn't help it, I'm sorry. Don't get distracted by that, sorry. But we needed, friends, as one in Christ, we needed to hear this good news to believe on Christ, didn't we? Verse 48, Jesus says to his apostles, You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It was the apostles, Jesus' immediate disciples, who would begin to carry out step three of God's plans. To take the gospel first to Jerusalem and then to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, what we read of in Acts and on. As they were empowered from on high, as they received the Spirit later at Pentecost. And we are not like them in every way. They were the authoritative witnesses who saw the risen Lord Jesus. And so now today we have been brought to repent and faith on Christ on the basis of the Spirit using their apostolic witness that we hold in our hands. This word of life that we now carry out to all who would hear, who would otherwise be perishing in sin and death. Friends, step three is the ultimate reason for every passing day in this life now. Every second, every minute, every hour that we receive in this world is a sign of God's fervor, patience, and grace. So that the, re the repentance and preaching of forgiveness of sins might continue on and on to the ends of the earth until the end. There will be an end. Are we doing this? I was very encouraged to hear just the other week how one of Tim Nichols' neighbors ended up at our Good Friday service. And the reason why was simply because he struck up a conversation with her in the lift. She, she asked him what he did. He told her, I'm a pastor. And then he carried on that conversation. He used that opportunity, asked her, do you go to church? She said, no. So he said, well, do you want to come to my church? We've got a good Friday service coming up this week. Why didn't you join? And she said, yes. And so she came under the sound of the gospel this past Good Friday. Are we in line with this step that we have been charged with by Christ as his people now? Are we making the most of opportunities we have to bring the good news to our friends, our family, that they might be brought to repentance and faith in Christ? I mean, if you're anything like me, you will recall times when you faltered, you've held back when you know you should have spoken out of fear of what might happen. As so we witness Christ to our neighbors, knowing we live in a world that is prone to rejecting Christ as king rather than receiving him as king and so prone to rejecting us who witness to him for others' sake. And we've seen horrific examples of that recently, haven't we? The Sri Lanka bombings this past Easter Sunday, but even since then, others gunned down in Burkina Faso, a family straight after a baptism outside their church. Even for us here in Malaysia, as we are afforded protection for now in this land, we will still be called to suffer opposition in various ways as servants of the gospel in this world. What's going to keep us persevering for Christ? Speaking 
to others of him when the darkness closes in. He gives his disciples every reason to press on here, even unto death, as they witness what happens next, as he, ex- he is exalted back to his father's side. Come with me to verse 50. Jesus' bodily ascension, it means we're securing him for good. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifted up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now, maybe we wonder sometimes, was this necessary? I mean, wouldn't it have been better if Jesus had just stayed? I mean, he's alive, he's never going to die. That would have been quite a testimony, right? To continue living on in this world alongside us, generation after generation. Well, we need to appreciate the wonder and significance of his ascension back into heaven. So Christ has now been exalted to the highest place. God has established him as his king, which means no power can kick him off the throne now. And his ascension here for our encouragement is a foretaste of the life that we will one day know in him, no matter what powers might work against us in this world. As we persevere with him, he has done enough. But the fact that Christ has ascended now in his body, it's not just the best news for our future. It's the best news as we struggle in the here and now for the sake of his gospel. I'm a big fan of a TV show called The West Wing. And my favorite scene from this series, if you've seen it, you recognize those two characters. It's Josh and his boss, Leo. And Josh has been having a really bad day. He's convinced he's going to be fired. And he shares his fears with Leo, his boss, and Leo turns to him and comforts Josh with this story. Leo says to Josh, this guy's walking down the street when he falls in a hole. The walls are so steep that he can't get out. And he notices the doctor passes by, and the guy shouts out, hey, hey, you, can you help me? I'm stuck in this hole. And the doctor writes a prescription there and there, throws it down in the hole, and moves on. And then a priest comes along, and the guy shouts out, Father, Father, I'm down in this hole. I'm stuck. Can you help me out? And the priest writes out a prayer, throws it down in the hole, and moves on. Then a friend walks by. Hey, Joe, it's me. I'm stuck in this hole. Can you help me? And his friend Joe, what does he do? He jumps into the hole. And the guy looks at him and says, What are you, stupid? (laughs) Now we're both down here. And the friend says... Yeah, but I've been down here before, and I know the way out. You see, friends, Jesus is our exalted Lord, yes, but that doesn't mean he is distant from our pain. He is the one who has been in every hole we could possibly fall into in this life. He is the one who has experienced every ounce of every sorrow and suffering we could know and more, and he endured perfectly in the love for God and for us. If Christ is ours, we know that one day he will lift us up out of every sorrow for good. But as we serve his gospel and struggle for his sake in the moment, we also know that he is able, as our mediator, to sympathize with our every weakness. See how Hebrews 4.14 puts it. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In Christ, we have a mediator before God 
who knows what it is in his flesh to be tempted, to feel the urge to give up, to give in, even though he did thankfully persevere faithfully to the end, the pain of his cross far more than any one of us could bear. And having conquered the grave, he now stands exalted in heaven, advocating for us, his people, who bear his name as he still bears the wounds by which he suffered for us, by which he saved us. And so now we can turn to him in our hour of weakness and need. We can know that he is more than able to keep us whatever we might face as we hold fast to him in the midst of our fears and our doubts, in the moments, even those moments when we know we have failed, that we have disowned him as Lord in our weakness, we still remember he has done enough. And so we repent. We turn back and trust again in the one who died to set us free, who stands interceding for his redeemed, strengthening us by his immeasurable grace. Until the day when he will bring those who have remained faithful to him, home. See, Jesus' bodily ascension, it means we are secure in him for good. And we take comfort in that. It should fuel us in persevering in repentance and faith. It's the wise response that we see from the disciples here, knowing that as we do, we know he is working to keep us for his glory. As we do, our joy in him will spill over into the lives of others. See how the disciples respond as we conclude. Verse 52, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Luke ends his gospel where he began, back in the temple, with the disciples praising God, no doubt in the midst of others who came to hear the good news of Christ's death and resurrection that day, because they knew what it meant as they had seen him risen and ascending to his father's side, far from a made-up happy ending, it meant the new beginning for them, for us, that we need with God. He has kept his every promise to save. We, as those redeemed by his blood, now carry the words of eternal life. And even as we suffer as we witness to others, we look to him who endured far greater suffering, who is able to sympathize with our every weakness, able to sustain us, no matter what. Friends, we have this precious time, very precious time, and very limited time, to declare the good news of repentance and of forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And this is a time that will not last forever. There will be an expiry date. Let's close by recalling Jesus' words in Luke 9.26. I'll just read them. Jesus said... For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. Jesus has risen, Jesus has ascended, and Jesus will return one day as judge. And the only thing that will ultimately matter on that future day is do we belong to him and his kingdom and his eternal rest or will we perish away from him, having denied him as Lord? And every day we draw closer to that day. So friends, let's be the salt and light that Christ has called us to be, having saved us by his blood in our colleges, in our work, in our homes, continually, faithfully, 
fearlessly, pointing others to the hope of life we can know only in Christ, our risen King. Looking forward to the day when he will bring us home to know the joy of his rest where the suffering and pain will be no more. Friends, rejoice and keep on persevering for him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that as you promised through the Scriptures, Christ has suffered, Christ has died, and Christ is risen from the grave. We thank you that because of the bodily resurrection that Luke testifies to here of your Son, we know that you keep your promises to save. We know that we hold the words of eternal life in our hands. And we know that even if we are called, and as we are called to suffer in our witness to them, to a world otherwise perishing, Christ is more than able to keep us, to sustain us, until that final day. So, Father, please comfort us, strengthen us, and encourage us in these things, that we indeed would be faithful witnesses, living lives worthy of the gospel by which we've been saved until that great day. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.